For scripture reading, I'll be reading from Hebrews chapter 11, and it'll be verses 1 through 16. It's Hebrews 11, 1 through 16. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death and was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him for whoever would draw near to God. Must believe that he exists and that he, and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for saving of his household. By this he con- condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith Abraham opened, obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And, when he, and he went out not, not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise as, a, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Our sermon text today will be from 1 Peter chapter 2. So we concluded our study in the book of James in my last sermon, and as I was thinking of of where to go next, I, I couldn't help but think that today is a Sunday after Election Day. And most of us were probably painfully aware of the fact that this was election year. But the question that I've been considering as we've gone through the last weeks and months is is what really is our role as Christians in the political process? And how should we interact with the government that is over us? How involved should we be in our country's situation? Should, Should we try to be bringing about changes or should we stay as far away as possible? The Bible doesn't answer these questions directly, 
and it doesn't tell us particularly what our responsibilities as Christians are in, in a country that we live in. But the Bible isn't silent on this issue either. And so I'd like to challenge us to evaluate what, what um, the way that we live our lives and, and the way that we view our country in light of Scripture. And so we will look at, at 1 Peter 2 and, and hope to, to um, pull a few ideas from this passage. So I'll read the, the entire chapter. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy." Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it, if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called." Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer 
of your souls. So this is admittedly a big passage, but there's three ideas I would like to pull from this chapter as we consider our place in this world. The first one is that we are saved into a new spiritual identity. We are saved into a new spiritual identity. The second is that we live in a physical world. And third, we live out of our spiritual identity in our physical world. So we see the first idea in verses 1 through 10, that we are saved into a new spiritual identity. We rightly fear the punishment of hell. Hell is a a real place of real torment that, that sinners will suffer as a consequence of rejecting a holy God. And Jesus talked about the realities of hell more than any other biblical writer. He illustrated the the horrors of hell in the story of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16. And we know this, that the rich man ignored the suffering of the poor man outside his gate. And when the rich man died, he went to a place of torment from which there was no exit. And so hell is the final judgment for those who do not love God and do not love his word. But the emphasis of the Bible, I think, is that salvation that is available through the death of of Christ is more than just being saved from hell. And here, particularly in this chapter, he doesn't focus on what we are saved from, but what we are saved to. And particularly, we are saved into a new body. We are a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, a chosen race, a holy nation. We are saved out of darkness into light. And the foundation of our identity as a new people of God is Christ, our cornerstone. Either Christ is our cornerstone or he is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. We must do something with Christ. And for those who believe he is the cornerstone, and for those who do not believe or who have rejected him, he becomes a stumbling block. Now, the same stone can be used as a foundation for something good, or it can be a nuisance that gets in our way. It depends where we put it and what we do with it. And as we know, a cornerstone was used in in building, and it was laid at the corner of two walls. And, And the cornerstone really ties the walls together. It gives them strength. And Peter says that we are living stones. And so we are part of the wall. We are part of the spiritual house. And so the believers sitting in front of you and behind you and around you today are also living stones in this spiritual house. They might still have sharp edges. It might feel like you are on the bottom row of this wall and have lots of pressure on all sides from the other stones. But what really binds us and strengthens us together In this wall is Christ, our cornerstone. Without a cornerstone, we become a pile of rocks when the first storm hits us. And and not to distract from, from the point of this passage, but I would also suggest that if you take a cornerstone and put it out in the middle of the road or somewhere where it doesn't belong, someone's going to get hit by it, or someone's going to hit it, or they will get hurt by it. And it becomes a stumbling block because it's not functioning what it was made for. Jesus is the cornerstone of the church. He is the cornerstone of the people of God. 
He is not the cornerstone of the United States of America. He's not the cornerstone of the political parties. And as believers, we should find more in common with the poverty-stricken, desperate migrants who are seeking a better country than we do with the average American. Now, I'll grant that the country was built on Christian values, but that's a value system. It's a system that gives order and stability to our society and which has granted us um, the ability to, to function well. But a value system is not the gospel. A value system can function independently of Christ. And just because the values look Christian does not make the system Christian. A person becomes a Christian through placing his faith in Christ and following Christ in life, not by being part of a cultural system that mimics Christian values. But back to my point, Jesus saves us into his body. He saves us into a spiritual body and a holy nation. And through salvation, we become part of something that is bigger and more important than ourselves. And the language Jesus used to talk about this was that of the kingdom. And I need to give credit to some of my, my thoughts today to Melvin Lehman, who was one of my instructors at Faith Builders, and developed a lot of thoughts about the kingdom of God as it relates to our Christian experience. But if you note in the Gospels, starting with the Lord's Prayer, you will see the importance of the kingdom. Jesus says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. And then in the closing lines, at least in the King James, it says, For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. John the Baptist preached a message of repentance, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And when Jesus began his ministry, his message was the same, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So John and Jesus called people to repentance, but the basis for that repentance was because the presence of the kingdom was here. Until we, we repent so that we can join the kingdom of God, which is here. If we fail to repent, we miss the kingdom. And then in Matthew 16, Jesus tells Peter, after Peter confessed that Jesus was the Christ, Jesus said, I tell you, there you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So the, the kingdom of heaven isn't just a, a spiritual or, or theoretical reality that, that is floating around us. We are God's people, and we are the church, and we are part of the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is, is larger than just the church, but the church is an aspect of the kingdom, and we are part of that kingdom today. And so it is the reality of this kingdom, the kingdom that has come, the kingdom that is here on earth, that shapes our Christian lives. We are not just saved from a future judgment. We're not just given a ticket to heaven for after we die. We are saved now into God's kingdom, into his body. And the real, tangible, physical part of that body is the church. So to reiterate the first point, we are saved into a new spiritual identity. We are saved into a body, into the church of God, into the kingdom of God. And Jesus is our cornerstone. 
But then beginning in verse 11, we, we see that we are not saved out of this world. And so the second point is we do live in a physical reality. We still experience a physical world and broken bodies which suffer the effects of the fall. And he gives us several areas that we need to deal with the physical world. Our physical passions wage war against the soul, and we, we must deal with those realities. We must abstain from the passions of the flesh. And this isn't just because God said so, but because engaging in sin is not conducive to the flourishing of God's kingdom. God's kingdom operates under certain orders. God doesn't just make arbitrary moral laws. The order of God's kingdom is as unchangeable as the order of the physical universe. So the law of gravity says that if I jump off the house roof, I'm going to go down and not up, and I can't do anything about that. And it's our best order to know what, what those laws are. And it's also in our best, our best interest to know what God's order is so that we can flourish in his kingdom. And that's why we have the word of God, which never changes. And that order starts with love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. And if we fail to follow God's order, then it's only logical that we will be separated from God's kingdom and we will be separated from God for eternity. And so Peter addresses how we love those around us, how we love our neighbor, both the brotherhood and the Gentiles and the civil authorities. And I think it's of particular interest how Peter addresses the political authorities. During the early church, and, and certainly when Peter was alive, Christianity was very much under oppression by the civil authorities. And tradition has it that Peter was crucified during the reign of the emperor Nero, and he was especially brutal in his torture and, and martyr of Christians. So if we're going to see any biblical instruction that gives us an excuse to participate in, in civil disobedience or protest against oppressive politics, you would expect it to be from those who are living under oppression for their faith. But what does Peter tell us? He says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and those and praise those who do good. And so ultimately, the respect that we give to those who are in authority is the respect that we give to God who put them in that position. And it says in, in Romans 13, parallel idea, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Now, granted, respect and honor does not mean unquestioned obedience. And we have the story of the apostles in, uh, after the Pentecost. They were preaching, were arrested for it. They were delivered during the night by an angel, went back out on the streets and continued preaching. And so the high priest was, had them brought back to the council and reprimanded them for, for preaching the gospel. And this is in Acts 5.29, Peter responded, we must obey God rather than man. And, and he gave them a speech on, on why, why he was doing this, and, and it made them so angry they wanted to kill Peter. 
but they settled on, on beating the apostles instead and, and released them with strict orders to stop teaching. And so the apostles went back out, and it says, every day they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. But we do see an example of respect for authority, and this is in Acts 23, when Paul was before the Jewish council on trial, and Ananias ordered for Paul to be struck on the mouth for a testimony that he had given. And so Paul responded to Ananias, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. And then someone told Paul that Ananias was in fact the high priest. And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, and he quotes from Exodus twenty-two twenty-eight, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So here, even under unjust treatment, Paul acknowledged that those in authority over him needed to be treated with respect, including the way that we speak to them. We see another um, admonition in 1 Timothy 2, where Timothy urges us to pray for those in leadership. He, he says that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So this is about the closest we, we get to um, having an a, um, instruction how to respond to to religious persecution is that we pray for them. We pray for those in high positions to allow us to live a peaceful and quiet life, but we also make intercession and thanksgiving for them as well. And so that the attitude throughout the New Testament to those in authority is, is one of respect and submission, where they do not require us to break God's laws. Now, some will, will say, well, does an evil king really deserve respect? Are they really ordained by God? I think the New Testament seems to argue that they do re deserve respect, and, and we know that, that the rulers of that time were not um, followers of God. But we also see in the Old Testament God's perspective of evil rulers. And so in Jeremiah 25, he tells Jeremiah tells the people that they would be judged by Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, who God calls my servant. And then later in, in chapter 27, God reiterates that, and he says that any nation that does not serve Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon will be utterly destroyed. But Babylon is, is kind of the epitome of evil, and, and God is calling Nebuchadnezzar his servant and, and using Nebuchadnezzar to punish the children of Israel. But if you read a little further in Jeremiah 25, God says that after 70 years, then he will punish the king of Babylon and the land for their iniquity and make the land an everlasting waste as a recompense for their deeds and the works of their hands. And we see also in Daniel 2.21, it says, God changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. So the point is that God is completely capable of using sinful empires and rulers to accomplish his plans, and they are all in his hand. And Romans 13 makes it clear that governments are, are furthermore given the authority to use force to the point of death. And so that the function of government is really to limit evil. The government makes laws, and then it brings criminal charges against those who break the laws. And this, again, um, promotes decency and order 
in our society. But the kingdoms of this world, at best, are only able to preserve the order of society. And at worst, they, they might contribute to the deterioration of order. But Lehman argues that the kingdoms of this world are not able to participate in the redeeming qualities of the kingdom of God. Which brings us to our third point. We've looked at the fact that we are saved into a spiritual identity and that we live in a physical world, which includes suffering and evil. And so finally, I'd like to to spend some time looking out at how do we live out of our spiritual identity in our physical world. How does our, our spiritual identity shape or inform the way that we live in the world? What is our modus operandi? I, I think this word um, can, can um, describe what I'm, what I'm looking for, our modus operandi, and it's probably one that you may or may not be familiar with, so let me give a little story on that. The, the shorthand for, for modus operandi is your MO, and, and so it, it talks about a certain pattern or way of doing things. And so in the fire service, there are investigators that look at arsons, and they look at a certain way of the um, arsonist who's, who's starting serial fires, and they look at, they, they try to determine what his MO is. And there was a, a story um, of an arsonist in the Southern California in the 80s and early 90s that was setting a series of fires. And, and they were all started with a, a certain sort of, of time device that was, was made of cigarette and matches rolled in paper. And then eventually the, the arsonist was identified as a fire investigator who had also written a book, coincidentally, about a fire investigator that had turned into an arsonist. And the book was kind of used to, to help convict him at his trial. And he's now serving a life sentence for murder for four deaths that resulted from the fires. And there was a 90% decrease in brush fires in that area after his arrest. So his, his MO was the way that he was identified and found. And so I ask, what, what is our MO? What marks the way that we live in the world? What is the characteristic trait of the people of God? And I think Peter gives us an example of this in verses 18 through 25. The way that we, we relate to others is transformed because of who we are in Christ. Our MO is modeled by Christ himself, and that is a life of suffering love. And the power of suffering love is ultimately redemptive. And it begins with us because we are the first beneficiaries of that in Christ's suffering for us. So the powers of this world can restrain evil. They slow down the rate of destruction by punishing evildoers. But their method is to use force. And it's ultimately a battle of natural selection. The one with the biggest guns wins. Survival of the fittest. And there's no redeeming qualities in the world's method. But God's people, on the other hand, are called to a different approach. It's counterintuitive. It goes against the natural desires of the flesh. And so we're called to do good even in the face of suffering. Verses 20 through 21. 
When Christ was mistreated and reviled, he did not seek revenge. When he suffered, it was through no fault of his own, yet his response was not to lash out at those inflicting the suffering, but to entrust himself to the God who will judge. And we know the story of Stephen, the first Christian martyr. At his death, he was being stoned. He cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. He had an attitude of forgiveness towards those who were killing him. And when Paul and Silas were arrested in Philippi, they were praying and singing hymns to God in the prison when the doors were opened by a great earthquake. But rather than escape for their lives, which would have meant the death of the jailer, they stayed in the prison and then proclaimed the gospel to the jailer, who was then baptized. Paul talked about suffering in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, For those who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. And Jesus said, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Then Paul goes further in 2 Corinthians when he says, Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And so in suffering, we tend to focus on the outer self. We are keenly aware of the pain that we face, whether it's physical pain in our bodies or the pain of being mistreated or the hurt of not being understood or the silence of isolation. We feel that pain deeply, and it's not good to pretend that it's not there. And it's not helpful to try to cover up that pain with other experiences. But the Christian response to suffering is to look to Christ, to remember our true identity and place our ultimate hope in something bigger than our own experiences or desires. And so so Paul continues in 2 Corinthians, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So our identity in Christ shapes our experience with suffering now. And as we're given over to death for the sake of Christ, his life is made manifest in our bodies. And through dying, we come to know true life. So we endure suffering because of who Christ is and what he has done for us. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. For what purpose? So that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And for as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. There was a doctor who moved to Afghanistan around 2004 along with her husband and two young children. She says, We knew we had chosen a dangerous land in which to live and work. People should not go with their children to Afghanistan to live and work if they do not have a clear call from God. We had to count the cost of obedience. We had to be prepared to lay down our lives. We had to die to self and our human needs and follow Jesus. Life there was hard. It was not a holiday. There is a spirit of destruction in that country. Everything breaks. Nothing works right or for any length of time. Because we knew we must be there, we did not live in fear. 
Our lives and safety were in the hands of God. We knew that if something would happen to us, that the Lord would have a higher purpose. And so indeed, about 10 years later, while she was at a meeting, the Taliban attacked her, her home and killed her husband and two children and burned the house. And she came home to find her family members being loaded into the hearse. And so reflecting back on that, she says, my relationship with God has deepened significantly in the last six months. I've experienced the power and comfort of the Holy Spirit in my life. I'm experiencing him at this time as a God who truly honors his promises, a God who provides, a God of love. So this is about more than just developing a philosophy of suffering. We don't suffer passively. The Christian response to suffering is not just to grin and bear it. Our response is to continue to love in suffering. And Jesus told us, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus was speaking to the Jews in the setting of being under the rule of the Romans. And the Jews were looking to Jesus to run his own political campaign and be their political savior. But Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of this world. And so Jesus' approach to oppression by political powers was not to join a political party or overthrow the party in power. Jesus knew his mission, and he was not distracted from his identity or mission by the powers in his life. In the first 300 years of the church, can continue this persecution and oppression of Christians. But we see no hint in the biblical authors that the mission of the church or even of the Christian is to include reforming the political powers. In fact, the subject of politics is largely ignored except for the exhortations to submit to and respect and pray for those in power. Now, the, the church's relationship to, to the political powers change when Constantine became emperor and he legalized Christianity in 313 AD and stopped its persecution. And the next emperor made it the official religion of the Roman Empire. And so for the next 1,000 plus years, most of the emperors of Rome were, were supportive of Christianity and were often in, involved in power struggles with the Pope as they sought to control the church. And so at the time of the Reformation in the 1500s, when the radical reformers suggested that baptism should only be performed on those who had placed their faith in Christ, that was making a huge political statement and was breaking a thousand years of tradition. And it put them, it was a theological position that put them directly at odds with the powers of the day and led to thousands of Anabaptists being tortured and martyred. And we know the Anabaptists also taught that we should literally follow the teachings of Jesus including such commands to love our enemies and not resist evil, as well as not swearing oaths. And all of these positions really put them on the margins of what was acceptable in society. And, and they, they were um, persecuted for it. And so Anabaptists historically have, have always had some tension with political powers, and many of them emigrated from Europe to America because they were seeking greater religious freedoms. But the position against participating in the military 
continued to highlight the tension between the way of Christ and the way of the, and the way of the world, even for the Anabaptists in the United States. And so they had um, the issues with with um, the draft, even in the, the Revolutionary War, they were being conscripted um, to participate in the army and had to move to avoid that. But as today, we don't face that particular issue, and, and we have the opportunity to practice our faith without persecution. But we do see our culture rapidly forsaking the Christian values that were once taken for granted. And so what is the answer to the growing decadence in our nation? Is, is the answer to pour our time and energy into the campaigns of politicians who will uphold our values? Or should we step back and consider who we are and how the people of God might declare his kingdom here and now? Our MO must be, as Jesus taught and demonstrated, a life of suffering love. We follow Christ in life by dying to ourselves. And the fact of the matter is that there's people of faith on both sides of the political spectrum in our country today. And you have got to be both deaf and deluded to think that one side has it all right or the other side has it all wrong. So is it better to oppose abortion or to serve the migrants who come here out of desperation from a land of poverty and hopelessness? Is it better to oppose gay marriage or to feed the hungry? Is the right to own a gun more important than the right to kneel during a patriotic song? When, when you take political sides, you really set yourself up for some serious conflict of biblical interests. And the government does have the responsibility to see after national security, but that's not the role of the church. If the government wants to build a wall, we should go over it to serve the needs on the other side. Yet, God told the Jews when they were forcibly exported to Babylon, which was a land of evil, of evil, that they were to seek the welfare of the city and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find welfare. So we are the people of God in a strange country, and we seek a better home to come. Yet we can't escape the fact that we are here for now, and we do seek the welfare of the country that we're in. Bringing about change in society, though, starts with you. We can all think of someone who needs to learn how to get along better with others or who needs to grow in grace. But consider how you can show more grace. How can you grow in righteousness? Have you died to your sins? Have you come to the cross for healing? Do your good deeds bring glory to God? Jesus is our example. Jesus is our King. Let his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Let's have a song.